I committed to myself mentally that if in fact I ever had the opportunity to use my platform as a healthcare leader to help others that I would in fact do that. And that's what I did. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. Donato Tremuto faced many challenges early in life, including hearing loss, bullying, and the loss of a family member. As a serial entrepreneur, he traveled all over the U.S. After friends were in town on September 11, 2001, he missed a flight that they were all supposed to be on, United Flight 175, which ended up being hijacked and flown into the Second World Trade Center. Donato is very candid about how devastating the loss of his friends was and how he turned that sorrow into a foundation that supports young people who have overcome trying circumstances. Let's hear from Donato. So welcome, Donato. Thanks for joining us today. Can you give us a little bit of your history? Let us know sort of where you're from and where you grew up. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I was born and raised in Dunkirk, New York, which is a small rural community outside of Buffalo, New York. At age 18, I went off to college, moved away, and have been fortunate to be in New England for the last, I'm going to say 30 years, but the last seven years only as a part-time summer resident. And I have the wonderful opportunity to experience New England, but also to travel around the world. I have a home in Italy and spend a lot of time there. When we were talking earlier, you had mentioned some events that happened when you were sort of at a younger age, one of them being some some hearing loss and some bullying when you were younger. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. And it was not just an event in my life. It, it was really, perhaps in many respects, the moment that really, I think, framed who I am. At age eight, I, I lost most of my hearing. And if you go back 60 years ago, that was kind of a unknown situation. You know, today, young children, when they have a challenge with their hearing, they go through hearing tests much sooner. But, you know, I was one of six children and my parents really didn't know what was going on. And so we waited way too long, which created a severe infection and deterioration in both my eardrums, which was really very unusual to have a bilateral situation. And, you know, for 10 years, I had little to, to no hearing. And that was eventually corrected or at least partially corrected? Well, it, it's a great question. And so I had seven different surgeries. And in 1973, I had my last of my childhood surgery. And it did bring back about 60, 65% hearing in my, my left ear and about 75% in my right ear. Unfortunately, with any type of surgery back then, there wasn't really a very strong construct of what to do. And so they were all experimental. And those surgeries lasted until 1996, of which the last surgery I had in December of 1996 totally eliminated 95% of the hearing in my left ear. Fortunately, uh, they did not operate on the right ear in 1996, so I still have 75% at that time. Today, I have about 40% of hearing in my right ear, 
and less than 3% hearing in my, my left ear. Fortunately, with hearing aids, it does help me get through each day. But every conversation, even this one that I'm having with you, takes a lot of effort and is always very, very difficult. And so when it comes to dealing with some of these medical issues that you had early on in your life, you know, the companies you eventually ended up starting revolved around medicine. Do you feel like the two kind of tied in with each other? Yes. And there's more in here because during that time when I was struggling to get my hearing back, what I didn't realize after my, my fifth surgery in 1972, what was shocking to me is that when they took the bandages off, I couldn't believe how I spoke. I really spoke like a five-year-old, and I was, what, 16, 17 at the time. And my wonderful sister-in-law, who was a speech pathologist, gets credit for the, the fluency of how I speak today. But unfortunately, tragedy struck again in my family. Three months after I had my hearing partially restored, my sister-in-law lost her life giving birth to her second child, all due to a medication error. And so I committed to myself mentally that if, in fact, I ever had the opportunity to use my platform as a healthcare leader to help others that I would, in fact, do that. And that's what I did is once I was able to educate myself to speak, once I was able to get an education through the college system, I committed myself to healthcare and to improving how you not only get access to healthcare. I was fortunate my parents believed in me and they made sure that I was getting the best care. But how do you prevent things like what happened to my sister-in-law? that nobody should have to go into a hospital to deliver their child and be fearful that they're going to lose their life. So you're correct. That became my passion. And so just to talk about that a little bit, you talked about school in your early career. So you had gone to seminary school. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there's several, you know, what I call influencers to my having decided that I would pursue at that time, I really thought I would pursue a life in the ministry. In addition to my having lost my hearing, my sister-in-law dying in childbirth, my grandfather having been held up in an armed robbery and shot, and my brother lost his life in a car accident. And so I think the influence of faith, I watched my mother, who had unbelievable faith, manage through each one of these, you know, tragedies. And so I, I applied to many colleges in 1975. I'm disappointed to say that I was rejected from every college because they, at that time, you know, we didn't have disability laws, but they all indicated that I was disabled. And I wasn't disabled. I was recovering from this enormous challenge in my life. And the one college that accepted me was the seminary college with one caveat that I would be on probation for the first semester. And if I did not cut the mustard with respect to academic excellence, that I would be removed. And I'm so, you know, honored to share with you that I, I made the dean's list every single semester. But when I was in the college seminary, I think that my faith and my understanding of losses in life and, you know, how you have to have faith. I think it was a really great educational system for me. And later on, I decided that I could pursue that ministry outside 
the structure of an organized religion and perhaps, you know, again, the reason why I chose healthcare. So Donato, you talked about ha- living in a gunquit part-time and kind of having some other places as well and, and having been born in New York. What did bring you to Maine? In uh, 1987, I was transferred to Boston. I had joined a pharmaceutical company as an executive. And I wanted a second home. And uh, rather than fight the traffic going to uh, the Cape, someone had recommended that I take a look at uh, Kenny Bunkboard in, in, in Ogunquit. And it was a no-brainer. I just loved the people. I, I, I loved the ear. I loved the relaxed style. And so I bought a second home in 1987, and it wasn't until uh, 1998 that I became a full-time resident. And then, of course, changed that, you know, when I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, to become CEO of a publicly traded company. But, you know, I still spend, you know, June, July, August, and September here. It's a wonderful place. I am fortunate to have made some wonderful ties when I was living here full-time. And it's become, in many respects, very special to me for for other reasons than just the, uh, the climate. So we talked about some of the medical traumas early in your life inspiring your professional career. And I know a lot of your professional career has been starting various companies and really being an entrepreneur. And so I'm just curious, first of all, did you find that entrepreneurship came natural to you? And then also, if you can tell us a little bit about what some of those early companies were. If you look at being an entrepreneur, there are so many things that are similar to when you struggle. That as a eight-year-old child who couldn't play sports, I had to come up with other creative things to keep myself occupied. When you think of the challenges that you have with people saying you'll never amount to anything. I had that label. I had the unfortunate label of having been voted the most likely not to succeed in high school. When you have those challenges, they are all very similar to being an entrepreneur. You're all alone out there. You have to come up with creative ways of taking care of business matters. Many times you have to be the CFO, the CEO. You have to be the chief human resource officer. And I found in those years when I was bullied and denied the right to be heard, I had to handle many things on my own. And so I think it was a natural tendency that uh, I wanted to start my own company. I wanted to be innovative. I was not at all afraid of taking risks. When you are given all of those significant challenges, I think they're very, very similar to what you are faced with as an entrepreneur. So it wasn't surprising. And so what were some of those early companies that you started? Well, the first company tailgated right off of the situation with my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law lost her life. And by the way, during those seven surgeries, I had some of those surgeries that were botched up that they were, unfortunately, they were not performed correctly and they gave me the wrong medication. And so the first company that we launched was a data aggregation company. We were one of the first companies that took the data from major health plans like Humana and United. And we aggregated the data together so that we can make it available to physicians so we can share with them what went well in the treatment of this certain condition. And so that was the light bulb that went off. My sister-in-law lost her life because they didn't have the data available to inform the visiting physician that she was allergic to the anesthesia that she was that she was going to be given. I didn't have 
the right medical office that knew that you don't give oral antibiotics when you have a chronic ear infection. And so that's what gave me the idea to build this database that physicians could access so they could see what's the right procedure based on the multiplicity of treatment plans. And that's how my first company was formed. Wow. Talk about building on experiences from your life. So your career is growing. You were doing quite a bit of travel around the United States. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I have logged nearly 5 million curb miles in my lifetime. Do you believe that? I mean, it's crazy. What was the work that you were doing while you were doing all of this traveling? Well, multiple work. And so um, one, of the, uh, one of the areas you know, that we were focusing on is that we were pushing to make uh, my first company global. And so I would travel quite a bit, you know, across the world. But then I also launched a not-for-profit by the name of Healthy Villages, one of my not-for-profits. I launched it in 2011 because I was reading an article one day that in our lifetime, one billion people will go to their graves prematurely because they never had access to a healthcare worker. Six million are children who die each year because they don't have access to clean water. And I said to myself, this is just not acceptable that 15% of the world's population is doomed. And so in 2011, I took my second company that I started was a technology company. I took the medical app from that company and donated it to the company that I, I launched, Healthy Villages, which is now part of the Tremuto Porter Foundation. And I have traveled around the world. We have implemented that program in 12 different countries. One of my greatest stories is in a small village in East Africa, which I have visited many times. We have lowered infant mortality from 100 babies dying per 1,000 live births to down to 15. 85 more babies per 1,000 live births are now living because of our program. And so I have made it my mission to ensure that healthcare access is a basic right for every single human being. And that's been my, 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 my personal work and what has really been a lot of my travel, but also my professional work has taken me to places like India and uh, Europe many, many times. Sure. Well, it, it sounds like such an important calling to you. So just to kind of rewind from that foundation a little bit, in September of 2001, you had friends that were in town visiting your home in Agunquit and were planning on returning in some of your work travels to California with them a few days later. Can you talk to us about kind of that weekend for you and bring us to your day that changed everything? Yeah, and you know, that's always a very difficult story to talk about. And so, you know, what I will say is that that day did change my life in a way that I would never have imagined, you know, to your overview that weekend, as many of us recall, was a remarkable and beautiful weekend. And the company that I had launched, the company on the data, was based in Santa Monica, California. And I started the company in 98 and still had it in September of 2001. And I would travel literally every Tuesday from Boston to L.A. And I would travel on a Tuesday and come back on a Friday and spend my weekends here in Ogunquit with my wonderful partner, Jeff. Well, three weeks before 9-11, 
our friends Dan Run and their three-year-old son, David at the time, had visited us in Ogilkwood. And I had shamed Dan and Run. I said, I can't believe you're, you're visiting us for four hours. This is just not right. So we pulled our calendars out. And lo and behold, we decided that they would come back on September 8th. Little did I know how much of a mistake that, that that would be. In any event, they arrived here September 8th. They were supposed to arrive in Boston. But because David overslept, they landed in Rhode Island. And so they changed their flight to go back on September 11th from Rhode Island. They came up to our home in Ogunquit. We had a beautiful dinner that night. About 15 friends came over. And it was just one of the most beautiful nights that you know I can possibly remember. Well, during the dinner, I got them to change their flight again to switch it from Rhode Island out of Boston so that we could all fly together on September 11th. I just so happened my my flight back to L.A. was on Tuesday, September 11th. Well, on Monday morning, I woke up and I had a severe toothache in the front area. And I was speaking at a healthcare conference that week, and I said to myself, there's no way I can speak at a conference with a toothache. And so my dentist in Boston was maybe five minutes from the Logan Airport. So as I made my dentist appointment, it was for 1.30 that day, you know, I said to my friends, why don't we all just go out on September 10th? And they said, Donato, we changed our flight once, and we're not going to do it again. And so I said to them, I will pick you up on September 11th. I'll go out September 10th, and now you know the rest of the story. A toothache saved my life, and unfortunately, because they changed their flight, you know, they lost their lives when the second plane hit the, you know, the South Tower on September 11th. The, the pain of that moment, for many of us, you know, it was the only one experiencing pain on that day. It was a, a horrible horrible event for America, for the world. Uh, for me, it was more personal because I did have an enormous amount of guilt. I didn't know why my life was spared. And, you know, this little boy who I was playing with, whose picture of his last moments now, you know, adorned my home, you know, you know, why, you know, why his life would be taken. And I just couldn't make sense out of it. But I went to, after planning their memorial, we had a wonderful memorial here in Ogunquit because it was their last spot. And uh, we had several hundred people come to the memorial. I worked with their families to plan the memorials that they were going to organize. But I realized that I had to get away and I went off to Europe. And it was there that I said to myself, I can either have anger and hatred in my heart, which I think people would have understood, or I could find some good in this in terms of my commitment to doing good and recognizing that there is more good in the world than there is evil. As I was traveling through Europe and the you know, people in Italy would hear the story of what happened to that boy. They would hug me, they would kiss me, and you know, I just started to see that there are a lot of good people there. And so Jeff and I came back and we launched the Tremuto Foundation. In October of 2001, about six weeks after 9-11. And when I look at what we've done in the last 21 years, I never could have imagined. The foundation initially started off as 
a vehicle to help young kids who have had disabilities go to college. And today we've helped nearly 100 students with scholarships, significant scholarships to go to college. They are screened significantly in terms of who we select. And we have a mentoring program and we mentor these kids. We work with them so that their dream for a more peaceful and promising world can be achieved. When I look at the last 20 years and I think of my life on September 11th, 2001, it was a life that was pretty much all business. And that event changed me to realize that we are not segmented creatures. We are dynamic, that your personal life has to be as fulfilling as your professional life. And through tragedy, you know, I have found, you know, I have found fulfillment. We're going to take one quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Donato about his vision for what the Tremuto Foundation was going to be and then kind of help how that foundation helped him start his healing process. We'll be right back. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it. A story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. We believe that mentoring these young kids could help to form, if you will, an enormous tsunami of good intentions and good approach to life. We are back with Donato Tremuto from the Tremuto Foundation talking to us about he really felt a calling to honor the lives of of his friends after they lost their lives in the attacks of 9-11. And from that came to start the Tremuto Foundation. So Donato, can you tell us a little bit on, you know, what your what you really wanted to do within your community with the Tremuto Foundation? What was your vision? Yeah, initially the vision, you know, when something like that has happened and, you know, to be upfront with you, I had never, ever contemplated starting a foundation before 9-11. So it was very cloudy. You know, what I did know was I wanted to channel my loss in a way that I could find hope. And I think I chose children because I felt so close to David. And I felt that I could I could connect with children in a way that I had connected with David. And so that was initially. And then five years into the foundation, our board got together and we said, listen, we, we need to scale this. We need to do more. And so five years into it, we decided that the areas that meant so much to Dan and Ron and quite frankly to Jeff and I were human rights, were healthcare access, were addressing social inequalities and financial inequalities out there. And there are programs that we now develop that can get implemented uh, implemented to address those areas of concerns. We have launched at the Ogunquit Playhouse uh, with a significant grant. Uh, loneliness is an area that I have worked on over the last seven years. It's the new credit condition of the 21st century. It's equivalent. The toxic effects of loneliness is equivalent to the smoking of 15 cigarettes per day. And so at the Ogunquit Playhouse, we have launched an endowment, a human rights endowment to address loneliness. Each year, 
it is their responsibility to work with our foundation staff to pull seniors out of their state of loneliness. During the pandemic, we worked with them in St. Joseph's College in Maine to transport seniors to a show at the Playhouse fully funded by the grant that we established because we have learned that the arts can pull people out of their state of loneliness. And so that's a few examples of what we have done. Five years ago, I decided that uh, after much pressure from so many people to write a book, I decided to write my first book titled Life's Bulldozer Moments, How Adversity Can Lead to Success in Life and Business. And I wrote the book because my story is just a story. It's no better or no worse than anyone else's story. It's a story. But one of the key contributors to loneliness is the lost sense of relevancy. And I have traveled around this country and the world educating people about storytelling. I'm the one that coined story health, that you have mental health, physical health. You also have story health. And the foundation has been supporting that effort in terms of providing grants and educational tools to help educate the importance of pulling stories out of people. This past April, I introduced my second book. But I do believe that many of the issues that we are faced with in this country, in the world, finds its substance for solutions in your desire to be more compassionate. And the second book is titled The Double Bottom Line, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results. It's been a three-year project to put that book together. We've interviewed over 40 world leaders, and many of you will know who these leaders are. We've interviewed a number of people from the state of Maine who are in leadership position, understanding how they lead with compassion. I am so thrilled to share with you that we had applied for National Compassionate Leadership Week, which will now appear on the calendar the second full week of September in perpetuity. This year, that week will be on September 11th to the 18th. It's kind of coincidental that the first launch of this will be that week. But what the foundation is doing, we have now launched Compassionate Leadership Scholarships at St. Joseph's College in Maine, at Regis College in Boston, at the Boston University School of Public Health, and we're now talking to two other colleges where we will have compassionate leadership scholarships to help educate our young on how important it is to be compassionate when you are expressing yourself and when you are listening to someone. And so that's just going to be my life's mission in using the educational system to scale solutions by first teaching people to listen to understand, don't listen to react. That's the whole notion of compassion and leadership. In starting this foundation, can you tell us a little bit about how did that process sort of help you move through your process of, of mourning and grieving and, and sort of moving forward from this major event that happened in, in your lives and in the lives of your friends? Well, I think the first thing that it did, it made me realize it's something that I now uh, practice, hopefully the majority of time, is that when I approach somebody, always remember that they may have it worse than you. I have traveled to Haiti. I've traveled to Nigeria. I have been to South Sudan. 
I have traveled to some of the most remote areas of the world, and I have seen happiness among people that don't have much. I have seen people whose sense of purpose and their sense of commitment far exceeds some of the initiatives and individuals that we have in countries where prosperity abounds. I have recognized the importance when you see something wrong, you must say something. You must do something. And that is one of the elements that came out of the book on compassionate leadership, is that compassionate leadership is empathy in action. So I, as, you're, as you've been talking with me today, obviously I can hear how passionate you are about compassion and kindness and how that's just kind of been a constant thread that has been weaving itself as you've grown your career. So I'm just curious to understand, I guess, two things. First, how do you define compassionate leadership? And then second, how has that served you in your life as a leader? Well, it's a great question. And thank you for asking that. You know, we really didn't have a established definition when we went into the you know, project around the book, which started actually in 2019, just before the pandemic. But what we did find in all the interviews and the qualitative research that we did with 1,500 individuals across the United States, the compassionate leadership definition is empathy in action to have impact. As I shared with before, many people will show empathy and say, I feel bad for that individual, and they move on. The compassionate leader actually implements action, and they then do something. So in terms of the Tremuto Foundation, so it started as being kind of scholarships supporting students that had overcome adversity in their lives within Maine. It grew to sort of what you were just describing with much more outreach and, and support. Today, it's called the Tremuto Porter Foundation. And I'm just curious, sort of, what are your goals or what do you aspire for the foundation to grow into as you look forward into the future? And what, do you, how do you, what do you see it becoming? Well, it's a very good question. In many respects, I think we're getting right back to the roots and recognizing that it is our youth. It is the institution of education that can begin to the kind of leadership that we need for the future. You know, I am so optimistic. You know, we were fortunate. You know, I'm 66 years old. I was fortunate that in my evolution of life that we had some really amazing leaders, you know, whether it be Robert Kennedy or Martin Luther King, you know, or, you know, whoever, Ronald Reagan, whoever it might be. We had some really incredible, inspiring leaders. It's hard today to really, you know, point out, and there's so much division and so much dissension going on that I really do believe it's going to be our young, our young people who are going to bring us together. And I think that the foundation now is getting more focused on helping institutions to educate the young people. By the way, there are no courses on compassion. It's very interesting. One of the things that we identified in this whole book is that it's not taught in the university system, yet we know that it can't be taught. And so if we can help our institutions through these scholarships and through the programs that we are instituting at the college level, can we embark down a path of building a more compassionate environment? Now, you may be asking me, well, why is that important? Pick an issue out there right now, loneliness. I've had some people say to me, well, why should I care? You know, the individual at home should get out of their home and go and meet people. That's not compassionate. 
the individual who was suffering from loneliness could very well be suffering from mental health and issues that, quite frankly, may be beyond their control. And so just ignoring these situations or thinking that because you're doing okay, that the other person is going to be okay is not good enough. And so I think the foundation is getting back to its fundamentals. When we started the scholarships with high schools, we believe that mentoring these young kids could help to form, if you will, an enormous tsunami of good intentions and good approach to life. And now my hope is that we can have, you know, multiple scholarships. We'll continue to have the one in Bangor and the one in Wells here in Maine. Each year, we're looking at 10 to 20 individuals that are going to get scholarships. And gosh, if I've lived to be 90, you're talking about, you know, a thousand individuals who will be out there and they'll be our ambassadors to spread the notion that compassion and kindness can be really a enormous driver to change. This has been a production of MainBiz. Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. The MainBiz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the MainBiz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.